In this week's Parsha, Parsha's Chayesara, there is a very lengthy narrative about courtship and spousal selection. And as we know, the Torah is not a bunch of needless stories or mindless history. The Torah is about lessons. And we know that in the book of Genesis, there's not many mitzvos, commandments that are applicable to us today. So whenever we see episodes, narratives, dialogues, stories, anecdotes, tidbits in Genesis, it's always important for us to ask, what's the lesson? And there's a Ramban, Nachmanides, in his commentary in Torah, he coins a famous axiom where he says, Ma'ase avot siman labanim. The actions, the stories of the fathers is a guidepost for their descendants. And thus, the commentaries have always tried to glean practical, actionable lessons from the stories of Genesis, from what happened to our forebearers, uh, and try to find what those lessons are and how we can apply them today. So when there's a long story in the Torah about a, a husband or a man looking for a spouse, and there's a lot of details in that story, the tradition is that this is the Torah's guide to spousal selection. It's interesting. Adam and Eve, they're the first couple. They're a different... Their courtship wasn't... There weren't really a lot of options out there. But Noah, who we talk about a lot, we don't even know the name. The Torah does not mention by name even who his wife was. We know her name is Naama because of the oral tradition. But we don't, we don't know how they met. And even Abraham and Sarah. Abraham is one of the most important characters in all of Torah and in all of Jewish history. And we don't know how they met. We were introduced that they're married. Whereas Isaac and Rebecca, Abraham's son and daughter-in-law, there's an entire chapter in Genesis dedicated to how they met and how they get married. In fact, it's one of the longest chapters in all of Torah, 67 verses. And there's excruciating detail about everything that happened. And all the commentaries point out that this, the reason why there's so much uh, emphasis in the story is because this is the comprehensive guide from the Torah uh, on spouse's election, how to find your mate. Uh, so what I would like to do is to go through chapter 24 of Genesis and to read the story quickly, or at least to go through the story quickly, and then revisit it piece by piece, section by section, and pull out the lessons inherent uh, in it, and to see what we can learn about this very important subject. Just uh, a quick note, uh, 12 years ago, on this week, I was a student in the Mir Yeshiva, the largest, most... Uh, most the prestigious yeshiva in the world, the flagship yeshiva of the Jewish people. It's the only yeshiva that's uh, over 200 years old and still active, almost 10,000 students. And in this yeshiva, on this particular week, on Friday night, they had a four-hour lecture by one of the rabbis on the subject of dating and spouse election. And what he did was going through this section, this chapter, breaking it down piece by piece, and pulling out the lessons. So the majority of what I'm going to be talking about is what I heard then, uh, 12 years ago. And uh, I'm going to have some of my own stuff as well, but just uh, as a note to get that to get that done. So let's, let's look at the story, chapter 24 of Genesis, from page 109 in the Art Scroll Stone edition of the Chumash. Okay, so chapter 24 begins, Abraham is old, remember Sarah has already died. And Abraham is everything, but his son, Isaac, is still unmarried. And Abraham decides to send his servant, 
We don't know the name. The Torah doesn't explicitly name his servant. We know his name is Eliezer. He speaks to the servant, who is the elder of his household, who is in charge of everything, and he makes him swear. I want you to swear. You're, I'm going to make you in charge. You're going to be my proxy to find a spouse for Isaac. But you have to swear to me that you're not going to marry him off to a Canaanite. Remember, they're living in Canaan, which is we know today as Israel. And Abraham makes his servant, Eliezer, swear not to find a spouse for Isaac from the land of Canaan. Instead, to go back east to Abraham's uh, birthplace and to where his family still lives and find a spouse for Isaac from, those, from his relatives, from Abraham's family. And the servant tells him, well, well, well you're sending me on a mission. I don't even take, I'm not going to take Isaac with me. What if the woman doesn't want to come? And Abraham says to him, don't worry about it. If the woman doesn't, doesn't want to come, you're freed from any obligation. You go there. You try to find a spouse. If it works, great. If not, not. But don't take Isaac there and don't marry Isaac to any one of the Canaanite girls. And he makes him swear and he swears by placing his hand on his thigh. We know we swear today in the Bible. And when Jewish law was fully uh, implemented, they used to swear on a Torah scroll. Why? Because you're swearing by by linking your commitment to everything to the thing that's most holy. When people talk, talk, they say this, I swear on my kids, right? The thing that's most sacred, the thing that's sacrosanct, that's what you link your swearing to to show that you're really serious about it. Abraham had only one mitzvah, the mitzvah of circumcision, and that's why when he swore, he said to place your hand on his thigh. That's the inference. So the servant swears. And he heads out. And he takes with him ten camels. Uh, the camels are all laden with all the bounty of Abraham. Abraham has all. Abraham is a very wealthy man. And he's trying to uh, give reason for the girl to join. This is a very rich family. So he sends Eliezer with ten camels. Uh, all of them carrying lots of gold and silver. We'll see that lots of jewelry is going to make an appearance in the story. And they've traveled to the city of Nahor, which is where... Uh, Abraham's family was from, and they're waiting out to this out to the city by the well. And the well traditionally was where the girls would come to draw water. And Eliezer is there and starts praying, and he tells God, "Help me, help my help Abraham to find a, an appropriate spouse for Isaac." And he devises in verse fourteen a test. I'm going to make this test to find out the suitability and compatibility of this prospective spouse, I'm going to ask her for water, and she's going to give me water, but also I'm going to give water to the camels. So that's his his prayer and his plan. And he finishes talking to God, and Rebecca marches out. And she's carrying the jug on her shoulder, and she's really pretty. He runs over to her and says, can I have some water? And she gives him some water, and she gives his camels water, and he's all excited. He gives her lots of jewelry. He finds out she's from the right family. He's absolutely overjoyed. And then he goes to meet the family. And that uh, is somewhat uh, more naughty. And uh, so he meets her brother and he meets her father and he meets her mother. And they have a whole discussion. He tells them the whole story from beginning to end. Repeats the whole story with slight variations. And he says, okay, do we have a deal? And they say, sure, we have a deal. Let's sleep on it. And they go, they go to sleep. And the next day, uh, they kind of have second uh, thoughts about it. They get some cold feet. And Eliezer says, you got to make a decision. Either you send Rebecca with me back east or not. They agree to call in the girl. They call in Rebecca. They ask her. She says, I'm all in. 
and they send her off. And she travels on the camel's back west towards Israel, and they have this fateful encounter with Isaac. Isaac is praying, and they're coming with the camels, and they meet, and they get married, and they love each other, and the chapter ends. So that's the story. Pretty remarkable story. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to go through it piece by piece to see what lessons we could learn. So first of all, I think it's really interesting. You know, the very first episode of A Courtship in the Torah is done via an emissary, via proxy. Right? It's not Isaac himself going there. It's Eliezer. And I would surmise that the most important decision someone makes in their life is who they are going to marry. And I would think, you know, people don't want someone else to pick out tiles for their kitchen. Right? I have to have to have seat myself. You certainly not going to send someone to buy a house for you or to buy a car even. Right? Important decisions you should make yourself. Somehow, there's some sort of message here that Isaac is only appears at the end of the story. And now remember, they didn't get married till Isaac met. But the, the, the bulk of the story is Abraham making the plan and Eliezer doing the execution of Abraham's plan to find a spouse for Isaac. And I think it's interesting that Abraham's calling the shots, Eliezer is making the judgment calls, and Isaac is not. And I think a good question to kind of ponder is what message is the Torah telling us by giving over this story and this episode and this narrative in such a unique way? Uh, We know uh, traditionally, there's been the idea of a of a of a matchmaker in the Jewish circles, and I think perhaps we could say that what the Torah is telling us by giving us the Torah could have just introduced the story. Rebecca came, and she met Isaac, and they got married. The whole introduction is perhaps telling us an insight that indeed the final call has to be Isaac's. They didn't get married until they met Isaac, but until they meet. All the preliminary determining who you are going to meet, that's all done by a third party. And the reason for that is, if someone, the third party, is an effective judge of character and knows the qualities of both prospective spouses, they're actually more capable of determining potential suitability and compatibility than the subjects themselves. And this is where the source comes from, the Jewish tradition, to have a go-between, to have an intermediary, not to determine who you should marry, but determine who you should meet to determine if marriage is perhaps appropriate. And I think the reason for this is, and one of the commentaries, one of the medieval commentaries, Rabbeinu Bechai, he gives an introduction to the section, and he says that traditionally, this whole section was studied by young boys and girls as they were approaching marital age. They would always study this. And he points out that there's three potential blunders that someone can make when making a selection for a spouse. There's three mistakes that they can make. And of course, I, I, I would argue that you know, if getting married, determining who you're going to marry is the most important decision, the most injurious, deleterious mistake you can make is marrying the wrong one. We know how expensive and how traumatic divorce is, 
and of course how sad it is and how sad it is when people commit to love each other until death do us part and yet renege on that commitment we know how the stakes are very high and therefore the higher the stakes the the, the more you want to mitigate human error this commentary ben machai tells us that this is an area where error where blunders where mistakes are very apt to happen, very likely to happen, very susceptible. And he says that mistakes fall down into three categories. On one hand, people marry because of physical externalities for appearance. They look really good, they look really hot, and that kind of clouds their judgment. That's the first mistake. The second mistake they make is the marriages of money. You know, they're really rich. Yeah, maybe they're not such a good character. Sure, but I, you know, I could have a big house and a fancy car. And third, they get married because of prestige. Because someone is, they're really prestigious, they have a really good status in the community, but not necessarily someone who has good character and good personality and someone who's going to be a good spouse and a good, a good partner in life. And those mistakes, right, the commentaries, are very apt to happen. And therefore, in order to mitigate that, it's important to get a second opinion, to get advice from someone who is not caught up in the same emotions and therefore is less likely to have those deep-seated biases and to make those grievous mistakes. And he adds another point there at the end. And he says, maybe this is a little bit of a high spiritual demand that's not really for us, but he says at the end, that ideally, when people are looking for a spouse, they should have intentions l'shem shemayim. They should be thinking only about the spiritual implications. Only that they should have some marry someone from a good family who's going to have, uh, who's going to be a good partner and have uh, uh, righteous children with. Because if you marry someone with good character from a good family, it's very likely that they will partner with you in. Uh, in siring, maybe that's not the right word, in uh, fathering and parenting good, righteous progeny, and thus you could be another link in the chain of Jewish tradition from time immemorial onward. That's that's this high ideal that he sets. And uh, the first story comes from the town of Mir in Belarus. It used to be in Poland, now today it's in Belarus. And that was the home of the great yeshiva, Mir Yeshiva, before it moved to Israel as a result of World War II. So there was, the story goes, that in the city of Mir, there was a, a really wonderful young lady who sadly, she had some sort of deformity. She was a hunchback. So, you know, she had all the perfect character and she was really a no- noble and she's really righteous, but she looked kind of funny. So no one wanted to marry her. And she's getting really old. And she makes a decision to write a letter. And she writes a long letter where she details everything that's happening to her, her whole situation. And she writes at the end of the letter that she promises whomever marries her that she will dedicate herself to him 
And then she will, this is, remember, a, a city full of Torah scholars and budding Torah scholars. She will dedicate himself with absolute self-sacrifice and commitment that he should be able to study Torah and she will dedicate everything for that. And she finishes writing a letter and she seals the letter and she writes it, she addresses it to whoever finds the letter. And she goes into the forest and she finds a tree, she climbs the tree and places the envelope there and she's done. Sometime later, one of the most excellent prime students from the yeshiva, he's walking in the forest, which incidentally was something that the boys in the mirror would, tr- which would do because it's a good place to kind of gather your thoughts and to kind of reorient yourself. So it's a tradition, still practiced to some degree, where people go and they spend some time secluded with themselves, introspection. So this boy is walking through the forest, through the trails, and he notices something strange. He sees the envelope. And his interest and his curiosity is piqued. And he climbs the tree, and he gets the letter, and he reads it. And it really kind of speaks to him. And he feels like the Almighty sending him a message. And he says, maybe I'll consider this. So he goes to the Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir, the head of the Yeshiva, and he asks for his, his advice. And he tells him, he says, if you feel like the Almighty is guiding you, then you could do it. So he actually married her. And he married with totally noble intentions. And the story goes, the, the addendum, we don't know who this is, because the this, this story is written anonymously. But the story goes that, that, that there's documentation that this family, this couple, they had a magnificent marriage. It was happy. It was harmonious. It was, their love for each other was deepened and it was sustained over the long term. They had a beautiful family with lots of uh, children that were all great Torah scholars and their own merit and things really worked out. So this was brought as a story of maybe the high ideal where someone wants to get married uh, not, not you know, for altruistic reasons, to do mitzvahs, to, to, to be as righteous as possible. But uh, maybe that's not for us. Uh, but still, we want to make sure that we avoid those potential pitfalls. We have to realize that there's blind spots. And therefore, the very first thing we find out is let's at least consult someone else to give us advice so we shouldn't make a mistake. So let's go back to verse 1 of chapter uh, 24. Now Abraham was old, well on in years, and Hashem blessed Abraham with everything. So what does it mean? Abraham was blessed with everything. So Rashi tells us that Abram had a son. Why? Because the word bakol, which means everything, is the same gematria, the same numerical value as ben, which means son. Now, what was the name of Abraham's son? Isaac. We really know that Isaac exists. Isaac had a very dramatic episode in the last week's parish of the binding of Isaac. And Isaac is going to be the individual that's going to be the subject, right? He's the groom in this whole story. So why does the Torah need to give us this preface uh, before the whole story, the preamble, oh, Abraham had a son, Isaac. We already know that. It's like the uh, Geico commercials. Everyone knows that. So just maybe a suggestion is that 
Abraham, he's going to begin his instruction to Eliezer by outlining what he wants for Isaac. So the Torah starts and gives a preface. It says, Abraham has a son, Isaac. And then, to find a suitable match, he had all these conditions. What this tells us is that there has to be a fit between the two sides. In order to suggest what the conditions ought to be, what are your what are the game changers? What, what are the deal breakers of what you're looking for in a spouse? If you don't know spouse A or potential prospective spouse A, you cannot try to con- conceive of what are the characteristics you're looking for in spouse B. First, Abram says Abram had a son and he knew him and he understood him and he recognized his character and what you know how he you know, how he operates. Once Abraham understood Isaac, then Abraham could come and say, oh, this is what Isaac needs to best flourish in his life. So compatibility goes both ways. You know, someone could say, listen, what I really like is, you know, to list a bunch of criteria and categories of what they're looking for, so to speak. But it also has to jive. It has to dovetail with what he is, he or she is. And then, therefore, there has to be suitability on both sides. So that's the first thing where, you know, maybe we could say that the lesson is if we want to know what kind of person we want to marry, we also have to know what kind of person we are. Once you understand who you are, then you can move on to say, okay, I am this, I am X, and therefore I need X, Y, or Z, or whatever. That's the first lesson. So, what does Abraham tell? Eliezer. First of all, who's Eliezer? Let's read verse 2. And Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who controls all that is his. We're told that Eliezer is someone who's in charge of everything. He had all the keys in his key ring to everything of, of Abraham's operations. And he tells him, place your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by Hashem, God of heaven and earth, don't take a wife from my son from the daughters of Canaanites among whom I dwell. Rather, go to my land, go to my kindred, and take a wife for my son, Isaac. So first of all, he makes him swear, which is point number one. You know, Abraham trusts him with everything. He tells us, the elder who controlled everything that Abraham had, yet somehow he doesn't trust him in this matter. Which seems an interesting little little contrast there. He trusts him with everything, but here he doesn't trust him with his word alone. He makes him swear. So, what does he tell him? No Canaanites. Go to my homeland. So what, why would he, why is he so careful? Why is he worried so much about Isaac marrying a Canaanite? So there's a few different reasons given. Uh, one of them, this is my suggestion, is that, you know, if a husband and wife, they are from different families and they are from different backgrounds and they're different genders, there's a lot of acclimation that's needed in the best case. Perhaps what Abraham is telling us is that, you know, we are, we're at a place here. We're not Canaanites. We're originally from Mesopotamia. And that's our culture. That's our society. That's where we're, we're kind of at a place here. Isaac is more similar to those people than he is to this pe- to these kinds of people. And thus, perhaps the lesson is that 
yes, there are humps to get over. There's obstacles to make a marriage work. But you don't need to compound it. You don't need to to, to uh, exacerbate it. Try to mitigate it, minimize as much as you can, and thus make the acclimation period smoother and easier. You know, they say that uh, whenever there is an intermarriage, a Jew and a non-Jew, the rates of divorce skyrocket. And perhaps we could theorize that the reason, one of the reasons for that is, is that you're adding unnecessary, forget about the religious reasons, but there's unnecessary complications because now there's another thing to fight over. Because now, you know, if, if the Christian wants to put a Christmas tree and the Jew, the Jewish person wants to bring a menorah, just another thing to fight over. There's enough things to fight over already. Don't add more. So I remember my, uh, I heard a story that my, my Rebbe, my teacher, uh, he, he, he had um, two daughters. And this uh, teacher of mine, he gives the largest Talmudic lecture perhaps in the past 2,000 years. He has over 800 students every day in his Talmudic lecture. And when his daughter was getting a little older, getting, getting of marriageable age, she was the most desirous young lady and maiden in, in Jerusalem, possibly. And this, uh, this great rabbi, Asher Arieli, he had a young South African uh, student in his, amongst his students. And that student was a top, a top of the line, one of the, one of the best guys in the whole yeshiva. And he really wanted to marry Rabbi Asher's daughter. So he went to him and he asked him, what are your thoughts about a South African marrying an Israeli? Which is kind of a wink, 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 wink. I don't know, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. But he said, you know what? Ideally, right, you're just adding another problem. Right? Because your mores and your your attitudes and even your slang, everything's different. So, but that, that's not such a minor difference. But you can imagine going to someone from China or from Bangladesh or someone from, I, I, I don't know, Nicaragua. Everything, everything that you like, everything that you're accustomed to, all, all your life experiences, there's, there's no overlap. And that's going to cause more problems. That's one, perhaps, theory why Abraham didn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite. But some of the commentaries point out that the Canaanites were of a less admirable moral standing than Abraham's homeland. And we know uh, the first time Canaan, the, the land of the people of Canaan appear, these are Canaan, is, the original Canaan is the grandson of Noah, and we're told in the beginning of Genesis that, that, that Canaan is cursed. And therefore, there's something wrong with them. Like, they're, they're, they're cursed. But one of the commentaries asks an interesting question. If you actually look historically, the people where Abraham came from, they were idolaters. And the people in Canaan, they were also idolaters. So why would it, what do you gain by saying, don't marry a girl, don't set up Isaac with a girl from Canaan, they're bad people. Wait a minute, they're idolaters back home as well. So what do you gain? So the Kliakar, one of the commentaries in the Torah, he answers that in Canaan, they had bad character. They were idolaters, but they also had bad character. They, they didn't behave well. They didn't have kindness. They weren't. They were people of 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 high moral standing vis a vis how they treated other other people. Whereas in 
Abraham's land, yes, they were idolaters, but their behavior was much more refined. He adds that bad behavior, bad character is hereditary, but bad ideology is not. And therefore, if you have someone, well, the family's idolaters. Yes, the family is idolaters, but that doesn't necessarily mandate that they will be an idolater too. However, if everyone in the family gets angry and they're not kind and they're impatient and they have just bad kids and just not good people with respect to how they treat others and how they behave, that's probably going to be passed on hereditarily or that's more likely to be linked to genetics. And therefore, you're asking for problems by, by uh, marrying someone or by connecting to someone on a familial level, certainly when it's talking about the establishing the Jewish people, someone who is going to introduce negative character into this family. Now, the commentaries point out that if you marry someone with good character, there's two benefits. First of all, we mentioned that there's a hereditary benefit, that if you want your children to be good people, to have good character, we know hard it is to raise children properly. And therefore, you already have a leg up if you marry someone that has good character already. And there are those that would even look to try to marry people not that people became better character, but people have it naturally. But put that aside. But also, like, what what does it take to have a marriage work? It's all about the long term. You know, the fact that someone uh, could someone could be in good behavior for a couple of hours, for sure, a couple of months, even. But to be to have a successful marriage, you have to be in your best behavior for seventy years. Right? That really demands a lot. And in all different kinds of scenarios and situations, you know, things don't always work out well. And there's financial struggles and there's all kinds of anxiety and all kinds of problems that you encounter in life. That's what life is. And if you have someone that has bad character and they're your partner for this whole thing, just think about how much strife you're bringing into your home and how volatile that is and how invariably it will erupt. And thus... Abraham is telling, we'll see, we'll see, of course, later on in the story, how that's the focus, trying to find someone with good character. There was a story, another story, about uh, one of the great uh, late 18th and early 19th century rabbis, who was named Rabbi Baruch Frankel Tumim, wrote a famous book on the Talmud called the Baruch Tam. And the story goes that uh, his son was about to get engaged or gotten engaged to a young lady, and as they were sitting there making the final arrangements for the engagement, they found out that the water carrier of the town, he injured himself in a way that he won't be able to feed his family, because he won't be able to carry schlep water, very heavy water. And the great rabbi, he started crying, and it hurt him so much that the fact that there's another Jew in the city, who, who was injured has, and now lost their livelihood. And the girl's father, in the middle of a celebration, there's flowers everywhere, and everyone's about to party, and he looks at him, he's like, don't, don't be sad now. How can you be sad now? Now it's kind of celebration. She says, wait a minute, you're, you're not sad? It doesn't bother you? It doesn't hurt your heart? Does it wrench you internally when you find out that someone else who lost their livelihood? If you have that character, you're not for us. And they annulled the engagement over that story. 
which shows this Jewish attitude of looking for someone who has good character, but also from a family with good character, because that really says a lot about about what kind of environment the, per- the people grow up and also what, what they get from their parents uh, genetically as well. There's another story. This one is a more modern story. Uh, there was a uh, the guy, a young boy, uh, he was riding his car, driving his car in Jerusalem. And on the way out of his neighborhood, he sees an old man hitchhiking. You go to Jerusalem and see everyone's always hitchhiking. I guess it's not even, you know, even old men. So he sees this old man hitchhiking, and he says, well, where are you going? I'm going to Machana Yehuda. Machana Yehuda is the big shuk, big market in Jerusalem. He says, no problem, I'm driving right next to it. Hop in the car, and they, they're, they're driving, and fine, they get close to the, the shuk, and the, the old man tells him, could you just go down the street and I just need a little bit off? So this young this young boy says, Wait a minute, you told me you need to go to Machna Yuta. He's like, Well he's like, Well, yeah, yes, but it's just it's no big deal. It just it's just a small turn. It's no big deal, just drop me off. So this boy, bad character, he's like, No, I'm not taking you. He's like, Well, I'm it really means a lot to me. You said Machana Yuta, that's where I'm taking you. You don't like it. He turns around the car, drives all the way back to where he picked the guy up. Drops him off. He says, you get, you get back out over here. Fine. The story's over, right? Or so they thought. It's really a horrific character. Anyhow, it's a few months later. This is a true story. A few months later, this boy starts dating a girl. Everything's working out really nicely. And they're about to get engaged, and they get engaged. And they have a big engagement party. And there he's going to meet all the parents and the uncles and the cousins and the grandparents. And he's there at the table and he walks in and he sees this old man sitting at the front head table. Turns out this old man is the girl that he's engaged to, his grandfather. And the whole time it's the most uncomfortable experience for everyone involved. It's just horrifically uncomfortable. He doesn't want to look at him, and the old man doesn't want to look at him. Everyone's super, super uncomfortable. It's super awkward. And then afterwards, like the parent, like everyone noticed something's, something's going on over here. Something's amiss. And uh, after afterwards, the story, the, the story came out, and the shidduch, the engagement was broken off. And the great rabbi in the mirror added, he says, it's, it's exactly tit for tat. You know, we know that when the Almighty punishes us, it's always exactly, perfectly matched up, mirroring the crime. This guy, you know, he gave the old man a ride. He didn't bring him all the way to his destination. He's like, turn around and bring you back to square one. And the punishment is, is that he got gay all the way back to square one. Now he's single and he's looking again. Pretty terrible. It's a true story. Now, Abraham trusts Eliezer with everything. But he makes him swear. So it's interesting. You know, Abraham, he trusts, first of all, he trusts Eliezer with all his material possessions. Whereas his spiritual possessions, his legacy, his destiny, which is Isaac, he doesn't trust him. And this is interesting. Like we, we see in many instances, we see the opposite. 
And the story goes, there was someone who was traveling to a city. He doesn't know anyone in the city. But he's a very religious person. So he walks over to someone with a big beard. He says, what are, what are the kosher standards? Can I eat in the restaurant? Like, what's the story? Who, where can I eat? Where can I not eat? I'm very worried about the laws of kosher. Fine, he tells him where he can eat, where he can't eat. Everything's fine. A couple of days later, that, that person who gave him advice walks over and says, do you mind if I could borrow a couple hundred dollars for a couple of days? I'll pay you back. Wow. I don't know you. How can I trust you? He says, you trust me in your spiritual matters. Once it comes to a couple hundred dollars, material matters, suddenly I don't know you. How can I trust you? Who are you? Maybe you won't pay me back. And here we see Abraham's the opposite. In his businesses and all his household, he gives Eliezer everything. He has all the keys. When it comes to spiritual matters, he makes him swear. This is too important. This is too important. I'm not taking any chances at all. So what does Eliezer do? He takes all the booty of his master. He takes ten camels and they travel. And he starts. He gets there. It's late in the day. The girls are about to all come out. And he starts praying. And the Talmud tells us that there are sources in all three parts of Scripture that tell us that it is God who decides which man will marry which woman. You know, there's this famous teaching in the Talmud in the book of Sota that says that 40 days before a child is conceived, there is a baskal, there's a prophetic voice that booms who he's going to marry, what he's going to do for a living, and what house he's going to buy, what house he's going to live in. It seems like it's predestined. Uh, but the Talmud in Moed Cotton, page 18b, says that there are, in, in, in we know Tanakh, the Jewish Bible is broken down to Torah, which is the Bible of Samosha, the Vim, the prophets, and Shuvim, and the writings. The Talmud says, I will bring you a verse from each one of these three, one from the Torah, one from the Vim, one from the Shuvim, that says that it is the Almighty that orchestrates marriage. There's another famous teaching in the Midrash, in Parshas Vayetze, that tells us that there was a heretic that went over to one of the great rabbis of the Talmud. There was a Yosef Bechalafta, and she, the Roman noblewoman, and she says to him, "How long did it take God to create the world? Well, six days plus one plus Shabbos, Genesis. Well, okay, what's he doing now?" So he says to her, "You know what he's doing now." He's making matches. He's a matchmaker. He designed who marries who. Really? That's what your God does? I could do it just as good. Even better. So she lines up a thousand male slaves and a thousand female slaves. And she walks down the line. You're with you. You're with him. 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 Makes a thousand matches. I could do this. I don't need God's help. And then the major tells us the next day, the following day, she comes to see what happened. And the way the Midrash describes it, the following day, one of them had a broken leg. One of them had their eyeball gouged out. And the other one had their head mashed in. It says there was a whole series of injuries. Because they got into fights and they started throwing pans and pots and pans at each other. And it didn't work out. She goes over to the rabbi and she tells him, I, 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 I give in, I concede, there is no God like your God. So again, we see this theme that it's God who's making these matches. And here we see, Eliezer, what's he doing? 
Abraham said, don't find a spouse. What are you praying for? What, Ab- what Eliezer, what the Torah is teaching us here, is that if you want to marry the right one, if you want to not make a blunder, think about it. You know, there's three and a half billion males and females in the world. Even if you narrow your search to only Jews, there's still hundreds of thousands. So, if you're going to trust your own intellect and your own ability, I'm going to sift through it all and get the exact right one. Now, maybe there isn't one that's perfectly compatible. Let's put that aside. But I, I know, I'm smart enough to know how to choose the right one and to not make a mistake. Well, we see that our society is actually not very good at choosing spouses. But the divorce rate is very high. And the divorce rate only counts people that got divorced. It doesn't count people that want to get divorced can't afford it. Or people that got to live in misery or stay together for children. There's a lot of people who are miserable in their marriages. Or separate bedrooms, separate bank accounts, separate TV remotes. Just lives like That's not a success in marriage either. So people at large, humanity at large, fails miserably in this area. And some of them say, you know what? I'm smarter than everyone else. I could figure out. I have my powers of deduction to determine with absolute certainty. Really? Of course not. Here we taught a lesson. God is making matches, and you pray. And how do you pray? You pray in English. You don't need to put on a shawl, a prayer shawl. You don't need to go to a special place. You don't need to speak in Hebrew, break your teeth in Hebrew. God is a thousand percent proficient in English. And you can even use fancy words. He also knows them. And by the way, if you say that the rabbi is making up stuff, I'll quote you the Masil Sashram of chapter 19, who tells us, that the essence of prayer is talking to God as you would talk to your fellow man and your, to your friend, and your friend listens and uh, and hearkens. That's what prayer really is about. So forget about the prayer book for a second. The best, purest kind of prayer is just talking to God. And by the way, there is a special area in the prayer book where you could ad-lib and say whatever you want. Not only is that allowed, it's encouraged. But Especially in this area, say, talk to the Almighty. Say, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. How could I possibly know? I'm, I, I don't want to make a mistake. I want to have a really wonderful marriage. I want to find a really wonderful girl or boy or whatever. And help me. Guide me. I'm totally ignorant. And that's what Eliezer did. He points out, he's like, I, I don't know. That's the first thing that we're taught. The next thing we see is he creates a test. And I always say that... You know, if if we were to just think about these things rationally, like it's it's incredible how ridiculous and asinine the process of spousal selection is in our society. Like, what factors do people use to determine important decisions in life? Put that on one side, and then compare that with what's arguably the most important decision you're going to marry. And like, it's amazing how. You know, we're encouraged to be rational and, and to think things out and, and to evaluate all the options. And somehow, with respect to determining who you're going to marry, it's just a free-for-all. You don't approach it the same way. You don't investigate it. You don't pursue all options. You don't, you don't really – you don't overthink it. I, I would say trying to find a spouse in a bar or a dance floor, it's like picking stocks by throwing – darts at the board blindfolded. You're just as likely to be successful, probably even less likely. Why would you do or why would you refrain from doing due diligence? We see what is what is what is what does he do? He doesn't even meet the girl. He's like, I'm making all these tests. What, what does it mean a test? 
He's determining suitability. He's saying, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking for a girl that's very kind. How do I find that out? He already has a plan. This is what I'm looking for. I'm this kind of family, and that she's kind. And how am I going to find that out? Let's make a test. Let's find it out in a way that she doesn't know she's being tested. Because then, of course, right, that's, uh, it ruins your, uh, it ruins your experiment. And he makes a test, and he executes it, and she passes, and she's from the family, and it all works out. And it's, I think it just makes it just logical. It's not, put the religious aspects of what the Torah is telling us here aside. It just makes sense to approach something so important so rationally. Right? That just makes sense. And somehow, our society doesn't do that. You know, let's say everyone's swiping, you swipe, right? Swipe left or swipe right. It seems it's so asinine. And I'm, now, I'm not going to say that marital success cannot result in such a process. I'm just saying, yes, you could also hit the bullseye blindfolded. It could happen. It's just very unlikely. And this way of doing it, by assessing the situation, making a list of what you're looking for, trying to find that out in a way that's most efficient, recognizing that you're not infallible and praying, that seems like a very just a logical approach and it makes a lot of sense and it just it, it totally it totally made sense now in modern times how does this play out so in every in in the traditional quote-unquote orthodox jewish community it's very rare to have a prospective couple meet before both sides so to speak have actually investigated the other side Investigate maybe a strong word. Looked into, uh, but asked questions, spoken to people, right? Did their research, and it's interesting. Just like over here, Abraham is sort of speak overseeing it, and there's a an expert third party involved. Traditionally, when possible, it would be parents or uh, mentors of the people involved to investigate potential spouses. And that's all done before they even meet. Because, again, if you meet and if it's in their hands alone, it's very likely they can make an error. That's just the way, that's just the nature of the beast. And moreover, you know, it's always, what, who do you ask and what do you ask? And, you know, people have uh, asked their friends if their friends will say nice things about them. I want to hear the dirt. And then you ask their enemies and the enemies will just pile on. Uh, so I think this, this, the way it's typically done is you, you try to figure out what the preponderance of evidence says. You know, you speak to a cross-section of people, and, you know, it's unlikely that there's collusion. All their friends and all their acquaintances and all their co-workers and all their uh, neighbors, everyone's colluding to sell the, to sell the same lie. Uh, but also, some of the more recent halachic authorities, they say, is that you know, there's this the, like we said, we, we go into this whole process by ask, telling God we don't know, by acknowledging our fallibility. And God is going to help us, right? Especially the more we pray. We ask him for help and we say, okay, every person, there's, there's not one person, maybe there is one person, but there's very few people in the world that you can't find anyone to say something negative about them. And vice versa. Right? There, you have someone in your life that who thinks you're not a good person. Probably. And you have someone in your life who, think, who thinks you could do no wrong. So, 
you know, you could be led astray by asking the wrong person. But part of how the Almighty helps and how he, uh, the, you know, how he interferes and orchestrates and engineers this is by sending you to the right people, you know, because if it's appropriate, if there's something there, if this is going to progress into something, right, then the Almighty will help you and say, okay, speak to this person. And if it's going to be dead on arrival, then you'll find out something about it in a way that will make you uh, caution or will give you some, you'll, you'll have some, you'll have some red flags and thus you'll be prepared. Now, of course, you could ignore whatever you want. You could ignore the red flags. You could. It's possible. You could say, I'm not interested, right? Uh, of course. You could go rogue. And you could say, well, you could kind of uh, be too nitpicky. Like, there's a lot of ways you can mess this up. But, of course, you have to do your due diligence. You mix that with the Almighty's help. And that's the best chances for success. Now, what does he look for? So, he makes a test. He looks for kindness. More specifically, he's looking for kindness where she is going to do something good for someone else without being told to do so. Eliezer says, give me some water. And what determines her characteristic of kindness is not that she did what he asked for, rather that she recognized what he did not ask for. She was able to empathize with him. And to experience, so to speak, what he's going through, is, well, look at him. He's got so many camels, and he's traveling with his whole caravan. It's possible that not only he's the one who needs some, some to drink, maybe the camels need to drink as well. She's thinking in a way of someone who's really caring and loving and giving. Someone like that, it's a, it's a very tailored test. It's not just a generic test. Oh, I want a good person. I want, I, want, I want to find someone who's good. And good is not very specific. This is a very specific test by saying, I'm looking for someone who has overwhelming kindness, the kindness that's worthy to be part of Abraham's family, to notice what other people need even before they notice. If you remember, we had Abraham last week's Parsha. He has the three travelers, and he's able to anticipate what they need without being told. And that is Abraham's characteristic, and it seems that there's compatibility. Uh, to, to, to be a member of Abraham's household, that was the bar that she had to, or any prospective spouse had to reach, and indeed Rebecca uh, mentioned it. She, she reached it. Some more stories. Uh, this story is about Reb Chatzkel Abramsky. If you don't know that name, he's one of the great Talmudic scholars of the 20th century. He was the chief rabbi of London uh, after... Uh, after the war, I believe. But the story goes is how he met his spouse. And uh, so, first of all, he was a great prospect. He was a great prodigy. And uh, he married a rabbi's daughter. And the rabbi said, I'm going to inspect to see how great of a Torah scholar this boy is. Everyone talks about him. Everyone lauds his uh, his ability. Let's see what he's got. So, he went and he started talking in Torah with him. And indeed, like over a prolonged period, he really shows that he has the chops. But then, after they finish discussing, he says, well, I want to meet your daughter. I want to find out how she is. He says, okay. So everyone's, uh, so he travels to her town, to her hometown, and uh, he gets uh, gets closer, and they're all preparing. And of course, everyone's all dressed, and I have a hair combed, and, you know, and they've made to put the special Shabbos tablecloth, and all these nice dishes, and there's flowers, and everything's ready, and everyone's a little, little nervous. And as he gets to the door, 
one of the little kids, this little kid there, yanks the tablecloth, and everything goes flying. Chaos. Anarchy. Absolute pandemonium. Glasses smashed everywhere. Just really a disaster, and he's knocking on the door. Wow. And then he sees through the window how the prospective spouse, she's holding the hand of the boy. She's calming him down. And she's very gentle. And she's very calm. She's very kind. She's not raising her voice. If you think about it, like, you know, everyone's there anticipating. Everyone's like, uh, everyone's all nervous. And then she's, you know, she's not going to scream at the kid. And he says, oh, that's enough for me. I, I, I see that she has the character of someone that would be, uh, would be someone I want to spend the rest of my life with. Another great story, a little counterintuitive story, about a young man who wasn't so young. He was getting a little older. And the reason why he was getting older is because he had a very unique specification to all the girls that he would be proposed to. His mother was getting old. She was a little senile. And his, you know, she was a widow. And he made a precondition, whomever, to all the girls that he would meet and he would date, that after we get married, you got to make a bedroom for my mom. She has to live there. And most girls, not for me, right? To deal with the old senile mother-in-law, not for me. And he's getting older and no one wants to meet him. And his friends and everyone's trying to talk him out of it. Send your mother to an old age home, you know? Why would a young bride want to spend time with the mother? Like, it's it's not a healthy... Fine. So he goes to Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach, who was the great Rosh Hashiva, and one of the leading posiks, poskim, halachic authorities. And he says, well, what should I do? Should I maintain this prerequisite or not? So he tells him, yes, you should. It's your mother. After all, you got to watch over her. Fine. Okay, eventually, he gets engaged. He gets engaged. Shlomo Zalman, the person who told him to, yeah, calls him over. And he tells him, oh, by the way, send your mom to the old age home. Send your mom to the old age home? Wait, didn't you tell me that I should? He says, yes, I did. But every boy, doesn't every every young boy who has to evaluate the character of their potential spouse they have a problem because how do you how do you gauge someone's character? They're on their best behavior. It's, uh, you know, there's three four hours on a date. You know, they're putting up a good show. It's a problem. You have an excuse. But your excuse was you have to find someone who has so kind hearted that they're willing to have their mother in law stay by them. Right. So anyone who's willing to meet you. Under those conditions, as someone that's you, you inspected her, she's okay. But now you're actually getting engaged. It's not so healthy for a young couple to have their mom there, put her in an old age home. But it's interesting what he's saying is that this is this is some of this is the problem, right? We have to devise these tests. We have to have a list of what we're looking for and finding a way and find it. But it's not so easy to find because especially if you're only meeting for, I don't know, you have ten dates or twenty dates, or that's not uncommon. In, in the Orthodox world. And you, know, you have to be vigilant. You have to be aware of what you're looking for. And you have to try to find it. And sometimes it's not so, not so easy to find. And here he tells him, yeah, you have it easy. This, just use that as an excuse to determine uh, character. So quickly, um, the verse points out 
in verse 16 that she was very pretty. And it's interesting, this was not one of Eliezer's qualifications. Somehow the Torah goes out of its way to tell us that she was very inordinately beautiful. And I think what it's telling us is, is that, yes, physical attraction is a deal breaker. It's important. It's very important. But you know what? That's not so hard to gauge. The actual difficulty in determining suitability is not about the externals, because that, you just see it, and it doesn't take so long to evaluate it, right? You could swipe on the screen and find out in, in seconds. And therefore, of course, it's necessary. You have to have that chemistry and that attraction. You need that. Sure, and the Torah mentions it. And don't say, oh, I want to marry someone because of uh, religious reasons and I'm doing it even though I can't stand them. No, of course not. You have to have a certain attraction. Sure. But that's not where the problem is. And therefore, he doesn't make the prayer about that. He doesn't make the test about that. That is self-evident. It's also interesting, if you look what he what, what she does, just in the actual in the actual test. So she goes to the spring, she fills her jug, and the servant runs over to her. This is verse 17. Let me sip, if you please, a little water from your jug. So she said, drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jug to her hand, and she gave him to drink. When she finished giving him to drink, she said, I will draw water even for your camels until they have finished drinking. So it's interesting that she had the presence of mind to give, to offer water for his camels. But first she finished with him. First she gave him to drink. And once he finishes, verse 19, when she finished giving him to drink, only then does she invoke the camels. What this means is, is that she, again, we see another sensitivity that she had. She didn't right away say, Ah, oh, I'll give your camels to drink. Let me let me give let me give water for you and for the camels. She doesn't equate him with the camels. First, I'm gonna give you drink. That's the most important thing. Once once that's taken care of, move on to the next thing to the camels. I want to go to the end of the story because it's really interesting to see what happens once Rebecca and Isaac actually meet. So they meet in verse uh, sixty-four. Uh, Rebecca, she sees him. She says, oh, that's Isaac. The last verse in this chapter, I think, is very instructive. Let me read the last verse here. And Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. He married Rebecca. She became, she became his wife, and he loved her. And thus was Isaac consoled after his mother. A lot of stuff going on here. A lot of moving parts. Let me read this again. So Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah. His mother, remember Sarah's been dead for a while now. Sarah died in last week's parasha, or beginning of this week's parasha. He married Rebecca, she became his wife, and he loved her, and thus Isaac was consoled after his mother. If you'll notice, this verse is describing the marriage and the love of Isaac and Rebecca. And there is multiple appearances of Sarah. Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah. That's the beginning of the verse, and the end of the verse is that he was consoled after his mother. So why are we invoking, you know, this is the ever-intrusive mother-in-law joke inserted here, right? Why are we talking so much about Sarah when we're talking about Isaac and Rebecca? So Rashi asks the question, and Rashi tells us what actually is going on over here. Rashi says that Sarah, after all, was a very righteous woman. And she even had higher levels of prophecy, according to the Talmud in Bab Metziah, 
than Abraham. And because she was so righteous, there were miracles that were present in her tent when she was alive. Namely, there was a cloud hovering over the tent at all times. That's number one. Number two, she would light candles on Friday night for Shabbos, and the candles would stay lit until the following Friday night. And lastly, there was a blessing in her dough. She made dough for challah. A little bit of dough would yield a lot of product. So that was the three blessings, the three miracles of Sarah. And Sarah dies, and all the miracles go away. And then what happens? And Isaac, read the verse again, brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother. Isaac also had a test for Rebecca. He said, okay, I'm going to put you in the tent of Sarah. Let's see if you deliver. Let's see if you deliver the goods. Let, let, let's see if you're able to live up to the standard of Sarah. And voila, what happened? All the miracles came back. The Again, the cloud began hovering over the tent, and the candles were lit from Friday to Friday, and there was blessing in the dough. So he married her, and he loved her. And he was consoled after his mother. There was someone now in his life on the same stature. You know, and in uh, in Asia Torah, in Jerusalem, the great Rabbi Noah Weinberg, he would give a, a lecture where he would talk about the definition of love. What's the definition of love? So everyone gives their own answers. Everyone has their own way of thinking about this. But he says the Torah's definition of love is the emotional pleasure you get when you recognize the virtue of another person and you identify them with those virtues. So what does love mean? When you recognize someone else's good character, their, their qualities, their virtues, and you identify them with those virtues. That's what love is. And to me, it always bothered me. Like, that, that's the Torah's definition of love. Where in the Torah does it say that? I can never find the answer until I think this is the answer. Isaac brings Rebecca into the tent of Sarah. He's trying to evaluate her character. Is she quite like Sarah? Will she have the miracles? Yes. So he marries her. And he loves her. His love was as a result. means the, the beginning of the verse and the middle of the verse, they're connected. Once he recognized the virtue of Rebecca, that engendered his love for her. And thus, the love was when he when he recognized the character of Rebecca, and he says, "Wow, this this is someone like Sarah." That actually brought about the love. So, an interesting point here. It's somewhat cliche and platitudinal, but it's important to know that we can't confuse love with lust. They're different things. A lust is very fleeting. A love is about some, about a person, not just what they look like or other externalities. And here we're told is that it's about character. It's about who the person really is. And if you discover that and you kind of develop that and you sharpen that and you identify the person with those virtues, then you'll love them. You know, the Torah tells us, love everyone as yourself. It's very hard for us to do that, right? But what this really, what it's really, according to this, what it's really telling us is discover the good qualities of every person. Find what they're what about them is admirable, once you find that, then by dint of that, you'll love them. And I think this is just another good 
takeaway for sure in life, but certainly with respect to marriage and relationships, is that the relationship and love hinges upon the mutual recognition of the positivity. There's always, when we're, humans are a mixed bag, all of us, right? we have good character, we have bad character, we have things about us that are admirable, and things about us that we wish we didn't have, and it's not so, not so scintillating. Therefore, essentially, it's possible to love or hate every person. Because if you focus, if you dwell upon the good, you'll love them. If you dwell upon the bad, you'll hate them. And certainly with regards to spouses, you're living in such close proximity, it's right in front of you. It's, it's undeniable, the good and the bad. But if you over-index on the negative, if you're always highlighting and, and focusing on that, you're not going to love each other for that long, because why would you love someone when you're always confronting their bad character? And that's a sure recipe to stop loving them and start hating them. And that's really sad. And thus here we're also told not only how to develop a relationship, how to make try to select a spouse, but how to ensure that that relationship and that love has continuity. How do you do that? How do you ensure that there'll be continuity and that the relationship will be sustained and will will deepen and develop progressively by constantly focusing not on someone's negative character don't highlight that why do you always x y or z instead focus on the positive i'm so appreciative you do this i'm so appreciative you do that this is really nice that you did you're so kind right focus on the good you focus on the good you love them more and more just finish off with one story uh, or like a line a one-liner not not of not, not of that variety a story that's one line uh, about the great Reb Chaim Shmuel Levitz, who was one of the Rosh Hashiva, head of Rosh Hashiva in the Mir, died in 1978. But he said an astonishing statement. He said about his spouse, I could delineate for you, I can, I can name, I can number for you thousands of good characteristics of my life. Thousands. He was always on the lookout for good things. And everything that he saw, all he was always trying to find out what are the good things. And we know humans are very complex. There's a lot of different areas where we're good and bad. And maybe average person is equal. Someone is maybe a really great person. They have more good. They're able to improve and refine and uh, perfect their character. But he was saying he was always prowling to try to find the positive and to try to find the good. And thus, in his mind, he's building this cachet, this, this list of all these good characters. If you know someone has thousands of good characteristics, of course you'll love them. So maybe we can find thousands because we're not as gifted or as talented or maybe our spouses aren't as wonderful as his spouse was. But certainly we can find tens and dozens and scores of them. And if you have that, if, if that is what you're using to determine the person's character and how, are they good people or bad people, if you use that and that measure, it's very likely that your love will not only not deteriorate and diminish, it will actually deepen and solidify and be more secure. So, we read the chapter. It's a very fascinating chapter. There's a lot of incredible lessons, and my hope is that everyone who's listening uh, finds their spouse if they haven't found him or her, him or her, and uh, once they find their spouse, they should everything should work out. And don't forget to pray. And don't forget to make a plan. And once you're married, hopefully it will last 
forever. And you know what? Not even until death, until death do us part. The Jewish sources believe that death doesn't sever the relationship forever. The two souls are going to be for, uh, to, uh, together forever. Fast forward a little bit in Genesis, where Joseph has this encounter with his with the wife of Potiphar. And Joseph refuses and says, Rashi, he refuses to be with her in this world, and he refuses to be with her in next world. What that means is, is that a marriage is a really binding of two souls. And just like the souls exist here in this world, after the body is interred in the ground, the souls continue in a different world. And the two souls of a spouse's go together. So it's a very important thing to get it right. But hopefully, my hope and my prayer and my blessing is that everyone here finds their spouses and finds really wonderful ones and things really work out uh, the best way possible. And I hope, you know, just bottom line is it's all from God. And that's the most important thing. Due diligence and prayer. Good luck.